And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun are two of America's most lettered journalists. They received the Pulitzer Prize for Journalism in 1990 for their coverage of the Tiananmen Square protests as China correspondents for the New York Times. Nick Kristoff is, of course, the longtime columnist for the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his commentary there, too. But now they've turned their attention closer to home with a book called Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. And it's a really personal examination of what's happened to the middle class in many of the small towns of America, including the one in which Christoph grew up. Christoph and Wudan, who are married, came to the Institute of Politics a few weeks ago for a live recording of the Axe Files to discuss their journey, this book, and the state of our nation. Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun, welcome to the Institute of Politics. In, in keeping with the time, I'm going to hand my questions to the Chief Justice, and <laughs> he, he will ask them for you. No, no, not really. Um, in this very, very powerful book, Tightrope, you're talking about the journey of Americans in small towns and rural areas and inner cities and forgotten places all over this country, but I want to talk about your stories. Nick, first of all, let me start with you. Uh, Like myself, you're the son of an immigrant from Eastern Europe who had his own harrowing journey to get here. Why don't you share a little of that? Yeah, my, um, my dad's family, they were Armenians who were living, uh, it was actually kind of funny, my, my dad would describe him, if you asked his, his origin, he would say he was uh, from Romania, his sister would say she was Armenian, and his brother would say he's Polish. And my dad spoke to his brother when he would call in Polish and to his sister when she would call in Romanian. Uh, and I mean, they were a very mixed up family. And the flag <laughs> would change periodically overhead. Um, and uh, then in 1940, the area, which was at that time Romania, was seized by the Soviet Union. The family was meanwhile busy spying for uh, the free Polish government um, as part of a network sending information back to London. And so the family ended up being, various people ended up getting executed by either the Nazis or the, the Soviets. My dad. He was in prison for a He while. was in a, he, he fled, was in a concentration camp in Yugoslavia for a while and eventually made his way to France and decided that France was not a place that had a future for a Slavic immigrant and began to dream about coming to the U.S. and eventually made it, not speaking English. His name, when he came over here, was Vladislaw Kristofovitz. Kristofovitz. All right, okay. <laughs> Three Z's. I, I knew I never should have attempted that. And he shortened he, his name to Kristofovitz. Yeah, he arrived and he would say his name was Kristofovitz and you know, people tried to spell it and that was pretty hopeless, so he shortened it to Kristof. I thought it was because he had the foresight to know that Christoph would look better in a byline. In a byline. Yeah. Well, his first purchase on arriving in the U.S. to teach himself English was a Sunday New York Times. 
There is something poetic about that. Yeah, there is. <laughs> uh, there is. He ultimately became an academic. That's right. He and, and your mother were both academics. That's right. So my dad arrived in Oregon not speaking English and worked at a logging camp for a year to earn a little bit of money, to learn English, and then went to uh, Reed College and uh, studied political science, then uh, applied to University of Chicago, political science department, and was initially told uh, it was not accepted to a PhD program. His professor appealed and said, this is a, a brilliant kid, and, and so they took him. And uh, my mom was studying here, at, and they met at International House. Oh, is that right? One more marriage produced an yeah, International excellent. House. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Uh, and they ended up at Portland State. And then they were both at Portland State, my mom teaching art history, and my dad teaching political science. You ended up in this in Yamhill, Oregon. The way you describe it in this book, and I don't want to get into the details of the book until a little bit later, because we've got some other business to do, Cheryl, about your story and how we got to this place. But it didn't sound like a haven for academics. No, we were real. We were way beyond the normal commuting range. So most people in Portland, you know, lived in Portland or nearby. But my parents really wanted to have a farm. And so uh, we had this farm in Yamhill, and they were pretty much the only people who commuted to Portland. And so it was a, I mean, I obviously had this connection to that larger world, but I was you know, deeply embedded in the community I was very active in, Future Farmers of America, um, and uh, the, the school was a you know, kind of very typical farm town school. You knew you wanted to be a journalist way back then, why? So when I was, uh, when I turned 16 and got a driver's license, I, the local county newspaper uh, hired me to write. And it was, I just couldn't believe that I was getting paid to go talk to interesting people and write stories about it. Um, That's not the usual teenage story about what you do when you get your first driver's license. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. But it was a, but... It was a great way, when you're 16, that turned out to be a great way to impress 16-year-old girls. And uh, it, it really was a, I mean, I, I, love, I love the writing. I love the, just the aesthetic um, pleasure from writing. I like being around interesting people. Um, and uh, the idea of being paid for it was truly incredibly cool. I was later in some danger of becoming a law professor, but I escaped that fate, fortunately. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> Good for you as an old journalist. I applaud your uh, judgment. Cheryl, your family had a classic immigrant story as well, only one generation earlier. Tell us about that. Yeah, no, if we're actually trying to prove our working class credentials, I would say that I actually even come from the peasantry in China. My grandparents were from tiny little villages uh, in very agricultural uh, Guangdong province. Both of them uh, escaped to Macau and then to Jiujin and the Golden Mountain here in the US. One, when you say escaped, escaped from? Well, they were fleeing really poverty. I mean, everyone was trying to get to sort of the promised land here in the US. And uh, so because it was extremely uh, impoverished there, and so they were able to uh, scrape their way uh, to get to, to the US. Let me ask you both. Uh, you tell these stories, and they have this common element, which is people who wanted to come to the promised land, wanted to come to America. We're in this period now where we have a sign on the, at the border saying refugees need not apply, immigrants discouraged. Do you look at this current debate through the prism of your family experiences? 
Oh, of course. Um, clearly, the American dream still exists, for the most part, for people outside of the U.S. I think that you know what we actually write about in Tightrope is that for many Americans, uh, the American dream is, is broken. But the allure and the magic of the American dream is still alive and well in the rest of the world, which is why so many people want to come here. But what does it mean, Nick, if we close down and say, don't apply? You know, my, in today's context, my dad would never be admitted. I mean, people would see him as somebody from a you know, potential saboteur, a potential spy from an enemy part of the world, the, the Soviet bloc, and you know, that we don't need more refugees. I mean, I'm struck that when my dad was on the ship arriving in New York, there was a woman from Boston who was on the deck watching with him, and my dad spoke almost no English, but she said to him, um, welcome, young man, and then she corrected herself and said, welcome, young American. And he was just so blown away that here he is, he's never set foot in America, he can't speak English, and this American woman is welcoming him as a, already as a young American. And that deeply moved him, and he spoke about it. And it's kind of the opposite of the attitude that we're seeing. Your grandparents certainly would have failed the current test now, especially as established by the Supreme Court just in the last few days, because they were peasants, they were probably not educated. Nope, uh, they were not And therefore their worth would be. No, absolutely, they, and in fact, my grandfather on my father's side had someone else's papers when he came across. <laughs> he didn't even have his own papers. Um, but it's remarkable that in my, my parents went to college. So in that one generation, uh, you know, they went from rags to really, you know, um, intellectual riches. And so it's still possible to do that. And it's really a shame that, you know, we don't think that people who look as though they're, you know, groveling and, and starving and, and, and can't get anywhere, we don't think that they can actually rise up when they really can. I mean, it's well, speak to me from the standpoint of you are steeped in business and economics. Uh, speak to me about what the impact of it is to the country beyond what it means to the people who get to come or don't get to come, but what does the infusion of immigrants mean to the country? Well, it's, it's a lot of different things on different levels. So, of course, uh, you know, you have technology, uh, people who are technology experts, and we, we are home-growing uh, home uh, people who, uh, you know, uh, study STEM, but there are a lot more people in Asia who study STEM much more intensely. And so we are, uh, obviously, the technology companies want more people who are uh, intellectually uh, And that's the firepower. area that you're... They're going to move towards the Canadian model where you're going to get all those people. That's one thing, but still there's a restriction on that. But in Japan, we actually, when we were there, because Japan is also very fearful of immigrants, and uh, they started letting people in partly because they had to do the jobs that no other Japanese wanted to do. Uh, the three Ds, dangerous, dirty, and, and disgusting. And you know, here we have a similar phenomenon because what are the jobs that a lot of the immigrants are taking? They're jobs that Americans really don't want to do. So in, in Yamhill, Oregon, uh, we see that there are huge numbers of immigrants who are 
incredibly productive uh, doing jobs, and actually we have an experiment on our own farm. You guys I, have a farm there. You right. confer, you, yeah. you, it's uh, a family farm. My mom has transformed the farm and repurposed it for well, other uses. And we still, well, we still have, well, it was, it's been an orchard for a long time, a cherry orchard, and now we're actually changing over to um, making, growing grapes and, and, and apples. And we kind of did an experiment in that we hired middle-aged white men who we thought, okay, we want to give them jobs. They're struggling, so we're going to give them jobs. But you also have some, um, you know, immigrants who are on, you know, on the farm too working. And the contrast is unbelievable. I mean, it, it's, you know, and we've had other businessmen tell us that if I'm going to pay a local worker, an, you know, American worker, uh, you know, um, $30 an hour, it takes them twice as long to do anything. And if I pay um, a Mexican worker $15 an hour, I get so much more productivity out of him. It makes me, it makes absolutely no sense for me ever to hire the local American worker. My business could not survive. Of course, the local American worker probably looks at this an entirely different way, which is... Yeah. And I'm hoping they don't listen to your podcast. <laughs> We're trying to build audience Excuse here, me. please. Um, you guys met as competitors. You went to business school. You got a master's in business from Harvard. You went to Princeton. You went off and were a Rhodes Scholar. You went to Harvard and were a Rhodes Scholar. And then you both became journalists. I don't have time to ask you how one goes to get an MBA to become a journalist. But <laughs> nonetheless, that, there we are. You were in Los Angeles for the Wall Street Journal. You were there for the New York Times. And you, you met there. Is that customary for competitors uh, to, um, use it to hook up? It was a little... <laughs> It was a little like a romance between, you know, a CIA and a KGB operative because we'd go out and, you know, neither of us could talk about anything either of us was doing. <laughs> and, uh, but it was good in that way because we didn't talk about work. We talked about <laughs> lots of other things. And so we found out that we were and it was before And it was before cell phones, so you weren't occupied with those either. So you could have <laughs> That's a right. full relationship. You got married and you were signed to Beijing. And you went as a correspondent as well. Well, I followed along for a while as the wife. Yes. Uh, but then um, action was really insightful because we discovered how the Chinese work. Uh, I was you know, going to actually try and go into business there. Um, I had three choices, go into business, work for you know, a local bank uh, or a bank, uh, or try and go into journalism. And so going to business, I mean, it was pretty communist socialist there, and so it was just going to be too difficult. The second one is I, I actually did interview, with, I talked with some banks, but they didn't have licenses there. Uh, foreign banks didn't have license there, so that wasn't an option. That wasn't very interesting. And so then journalism, basically I had to woo uh, the Chinese foreign ministry into giving me credentials. Were you uh, the object of suspicion because you were Chinese-American? Um, there were multiple reactions. Um, one is that people, I was trying, someone tried to recruit me to be a spy uh, for, you know, uh, for, for <laughs> between China and Taiwan. Um, and um, others, I wouldn't say necessarily. You decided too much, too much travel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wasn't being paid enough. Right? <laughs> um, no, I would say that, um, I wouldn't say that they were necessarily suspicious, uh, but they didn't want another, you know, um, liberal, you know, New York Times writer writing about communism in China. So I actually positioned myself, well, I have a background in business and in economics. So actually, I positioned myself as, I'm going to write about China's growing economy. And they love that. Smart. You'd be good in politics. <laughs> it turns out that you, you were there at a very, very momentous period in the history of China, including Tiananmen Square and uh, the revolt that was crushed. 
And you wrote about it, and you wrote about it in such a way that you shared a Pulitzer Prize for writing about. But I'm interested in what your personal reactions were at that time, covering that, that moment that was so heartbreaking and inspiring at the same time. My single most powerful memory uh, when I was out on Tiananmen Square and the troops were opening fire had to do with the fact that there'd been a lot of debate among American observers about whether the Chinese people were quote unquote ready for democracy. And the idea was that people who are poorer, who are less educated, may not be really ready to sustain democracy. And there was commentary that you know, they may have had protests clamoring for democracy, but they didn't really know what they meant by democracy. And then that night, watching people die for democracy and watching, and particularly the bravest people that night on Tiananmen Square were these rickshaw drivers who, whenever there was a pause in the shooting, they would go out and pick up the bodies of kids who'd been uh, killed or injured and then drive them to the hospitals on the back of these open rickshaws. And these were guys from the countryside. These were peasants. They you know, they certainly couldn't have given you some grand formula for democracy, but there they were, and in some cases dying for these principles. And it, um, it taught me just a deep lesson that, you know, when you are, when people are risking their lives for something, they are ready for it. Mm-hmm. Also probably should teach people who have it to appreciate it. Absolutely. For me, one of the most striking memories I have is um, when it started happening, I was talking with the foreign editor and at the Times, and he said, um, you've got to start counting the bodies. And I, you know, I was jarred at first, I say, counting the bodies? Because he knew that you know, in history, you need to know the facts of how many people were killed. And so before there would be a lockdown, uh, you have to go start counting the bodies. So that meant going to the hospitals and sort of talking to them and finding out what the numbers were. And so we started doing that. And um, between you know, what we learned and what the Red Cross had come up with, we were able to have a really fairly accurate estimate of what the range was. Because as soon after they, they had a lockdown, then people started throwing out numbers. 10,000, 2,000, and, and you just have to get um, you know, sort of focused on what really the numbers are. And I can imagine right now with the coronavirus uh, you know, going on uh, that there's a lockdown already on numbers and it's only going to go through official channels. We won't know what the real numbers are and they may not be uh, similar to, to what the official number is. And you guys set out into rural China, into the countryside after Tiananmen Square to sort of find out how much the democracy movement had penetrated, what people knew about what happened there. What did you discover? Surprisingly, the propaganda worked pretty well in the countryside and that there was this, among the peasantry, there was this deep desire for order and stability and a certain amount of suspicion of rich, educated people in the cities who were clamoring for things they didn't really understand. And the countryside, which supplied the troops for the People's Liberation Army, there was still fairly strong support for the government. You guys were there for three years? Five years. Five years. And ultimately, you probably weren't on the sort of top of the list of most admired people by the government there. Yeah. 
and you ultimately chose to leave. What was it like as a journalist to function in an authoritarian environment in which there's state control of the media? It was extremely difficult, and, and you know certainly um, you know foreigners were at least journalists were much more circumscribed. We had to notify anytime we wanted to have any travel, we had to notify them three days in advance the the, the government, uh, and there were all sorts of regulations, um, and they can you know pull levers anytime they want. So for instance, when I had my first child uh, in Hong Kong, I went to Hong Kong. Um, even though a million babies are born in China, I decided to have my baby in Hong Kong. I went to Hong Kong and they wouldn't give a visa for my son, knowing that that meant that I couldn't come back to China too. And that was a way you know, that I couldn't come back and go to work. So uh, they're very good at, at pulling those levers. And so we know what it's like, um, in an, also just having lived there, uh, to live in, in an in a environment, in a country that is really socialist and there's an abuse of power. I mean, you know, a dictatorship there. Yeah. Did you, I presume you were surveilled and... Yep. We were, I, I wrote in particular one article about Prime Minister Li Peng and um, mentioned that his mom had a very dim view of him. And he was furious. Didn't at take this. that well, huh? He did not take that well. And so there Wonder were... Wonder how his mom felt about it. <laughs> There was some discussion about kicking us out, and then they, uh, they put us on incredibly intense surveillance. So every time we went out, I would go out jogging, and I'd have several cars and motorcycles uh, tailing me. And, and not uh, because you were a superior athlete, huh? No, they weren't trying to learn running techniques. Um, <laughs> that's probably the point when they began to regret giving Cheryl a visa, because it was a lot easier for Cheryl to lose her tails than it was for me. Um, but, you know, the night, I remember we, had, we were just deciding whether to leave, and a, the Washington Post reporter, the state security, arrested two of her best friends and Chinese, right. Chinese friends, uh, a couple, and ended up sending them to prison for something like 10 years and seven years. And as we, suspected sources. As suspected sources for, for giving them materials. And you know, we had Chinese friends who were giving us classified materials. They, in that sense, they were breaking the law. Nobody had gotten into trouble. But I remember we, just, we couldn't sleep that night. And we thought, you know, at some point, w this will happen to us. We will get our dear friends in trouble and destroy their lives. And we that, decided we want to leave. Go. This is when we've got to go. We're now in a period of great competition that far surpasses what we saw then. And the Chinese are basically making the argument globally that the Chinese model, the authoritarian model, is more agile, uh, better suited to, uh, to, be, to compete in the 21st century, unfettered by this clunky democracy where it's hard to get anything done. They can plan, they can act. How compelling is the story that they're telling, do you think? How do you see the competition between the U.S. and China right now? Right. So I would say that on certain fronts, uh, China is very, very competitive. Um, and we, as a democracy, as a capitalist model, have really failed. We are not actually as flexible as we think we are. I mean, the U.S. thinks of it itself as number one. But according to, as we write in Tightrope, according to the Social Progress Index, which actually measures uh, many different categories, personal safety, access to internet, uh, you know, education, healthcare, we overall rank number 26. 
so, you know, if we think that we have a flexible capitalist model, we don't. We have a capitalist model that actually is exclusive capitalism. Now, China, all right, they obviously have their own um, problems as well, and they're very capitalist, and they also have uh, crony capitalism, but they also have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, which is far better than what we're doing, because we have people sinking. I mean, we're improving uh, supposedly on the very, very low level of, of poverty, but we actually have people, uh, you know, a lot of Americans uh, sinking into, um, you know, a, a situation where they're struggling and cannot make ends meet. And so I do think that, you know, China's threat to us really should force us to evaluate our model of capitalism. You have a foot in both worlds. You're a journalist and you're reporting on the condition of large segments of Americans here. And you also, you're the managing director of, of an investment bank and you live in the Wall Street world. In this book, you both are very clear about the failures of policy and government to do its part. What about corporate America and Wall Street? And how much awareness is there of these deficiencies that threaten the social fabric of this country and ultimately threaten capitalism and democracy? I think there is growing awareness. Um, and I do think that some people have seriously thought about it and are trying to make um, you know, changes, but it is like moving a huge aircraft carrier. But you, know, you have someone like Jamie Dimon who is trying to you know, move from the idea of shareholder capitalism, and I know that that's you know, sacred here, <laughs> but to stakeholder capitalism, which um, you know, is, is, makes a lot more sense. It is something that Asian countries have actually sort of you know, uh, intuitively or informally subscribed to. Uh, and I think that, you know, Ray, even Ray Dalio, you know, has said that, you know, capitalism is broken. So I do think there's a growing recognition. The next question really is, how do we get there? So when the business coalition says, okay, you know, all these people, all these, you know, CEOs have signed up and said we should focus on stakeholder capitalism, um, there was some interesting research that showed that if you looked at the list of companies that signed up, they're actually, their companies actually probably do worse than those people who didn't sign up in, in, in stakeholder capitalism. Yeah. And so maybe it's more aspirational that these people want to actually, you know, uh, try to move in that direction. It's hard to pay the rent with aspirations. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I do think that we are holding, holding back GDP because if you don't have all Americans firing on all pistons, then they're not contributing to the GDP. And you have China with 1.4 billion people, and we write about this in Tightrope, and India soon to have 1.4 billion people. How are we ever gonna compete if we don't have all Americans really charging full speed ahead? Consumer spending is 70% of the drivers. But we're still only 320 million people. Yeah, unrelated point. Uh, you mentioned you had your first child when you were over there, and People reacted to you in China. They asked you a question. They had their one-child policy, and they asked you a question that actually set you both on a course about examining how women are treated and how girls are treated around the world. It led to one of your five books. Talk about how provocative that was. Right. Well, when I first had my baby, um, I would tell my Chinese friends, and the first question they said before congratulations, they said, oh, is it a boy or a girl? <laughs> then I said it was a boy. They'd say, oh, congratulations. And I'm like, what does that mean? If I said it was a girl, they would actually take pity on me. I mean, it was, it was, it was even then, it was so visceral that even my you know, friends who were my age were asking that question. And so 
you know, it, 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 I think it's loosening now. Um, it's changing a little bit more because now there's a Chinese saying that, well, the girls will look after their parents and the boys won't, so it's better to have girls. And, uh, and so um, I think it is changing. And now that there's a two-child policy, that, um, you know, I, th I think that's helping a lot too. Yeah, and you, uh, again, you guys wrote a book called Half a Sky from Oppression to Opportunity for Women Worldwide that uh, really, you traveled widely. This was not only a phenomenon of China and highly recommend that. By the way, you guys have written, five, I mentioned five books together. That doesn't sound like a prescription for domestic tranquility. <laughs> uh, you know, if you can raise kids together uh, and the marriage survive, a book is a piece of cake. It really <laughs> is. Yeah, you can put a book manuscript down to bed at night and it stays asleep. Um, it doesn't talk back to you. Yeah, it doesn't play you off each other. The yeah. book is so much easier than kids. Yeah, it sounds, uh, it sounds hard though. I mean, collaborations are hard in any case, but you guys obviously right. have found a prescription for it. I mean, the key is um, not minding someone else editing you. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's the key. Yeah. And surrender, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, different perspectives. Uh, so one of the reasons you have such celebrity as a journalist is that you've kind of reinvented, uh, in a way, the position of the op-ed columnist. You're not simply, and I don't want to impugn any uh, of my friends who are op-ed columnists, but you're not sitting there every day thinking great thoughts with your feet on your desk. You've traveled all over the world and you've used that position to shine a bright light in the darkest corners uh, of this planet, places like Sudan and Darfur where you uh, exposed uh, the genocide. You won a Pulitzer Prize around that work and human trafficking and a whole range of other issues, health issues. In some cases it wasn't safe I mean, you put your life at risk. Tell me how you envision your role. Well, I think part of it was that, you know, we had spent many, many years as reporters before I became a columnist. And when I was a reporter, and especially a foreign, a column, a foreign correspondent, I learned to have a deep suspicion of columnists who pontificate from, you know, inside the bubble. And I saw how- You, of course, are also not commenting on your colleagues at the time. So. Not at all, not at all. Um, but just, you know, how important it is to get in the field and get outside the Capitol and talk to people. And I think that in addition, one of the things I learned after I became a columnist was, you know, when I, when I first got this real estate on the op-ed page, I thought, wow, I'm gonna be, you know, changing people's minds twice a week and blah, blah. And it turns out that isn't the case at all. That if I, if I write about things that people have already thought about, so if I write about uh, the Middle East peace plan, if I write about impeachment, whatever, then I essentially don't change anybody's mind. Uh, people who start out agreeing think it was brilliant. People who start out disagreeing think, oh, Christoph's off his rocker again. That where... You've been reading your social media, haven't you? <laughs> that where... I think a columnist and maybe any journalist really has influence is not so much changing minds on issues that are on the agenda, but actually helping change what is on the agenda, project, we, ha we have spotlights. And if we can use that spotlight to project it on something and hence elevate it to the agenda, then that is a step toward getting it addressed. And so what was interesting about my reporting on Darfur or sex trafficking was not my opinions on it. I mean, they were pretty banal, but it was, it was making people 
spill their coffee as they read about what was happening in Darfur, in a brothel, whatever it may be. Or in, in our own backyard, which is what we did or, with Tightrope. I mean, yes. yeah. I mean, it's like that's what was so surprising is you contrast it, and it really is pretty bad here, too. Yeah. Although the less risk associated with, with going with to Yamhill. Did it make Yam you nervous safe. when he'd go off on these forays to Darfur? Oh, to Yamhill. No, not to Yamhill. Um, to, to Darfur, yeah. No, there's, there's a real risk. And he actually didn't tell me all the time where, where we was going. Uh, and um, so it was only when he was with George Clooney that I was uh, you know, rest assured because I knew that George Clooney would not go into a, a place that was very, 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 very yeah, dangerous. But you had, you know, Small kids and right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, I got into trouble once because after a plane crash, I, I thought I would best tell Cheryl after I got back home. You were in the plane. I was in the plane. Yes, and uh, it's a hard thing to keep a secret. But well, um, I thought it'd be best to tell in person after I got back. And but I, I had to tell the foreign desk um, why all of a sudden I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And shortly afterward, Cheryl spoke to somebody in the foreign desk who said, that was terrible, that next plane crash. And uh, I was completely, you know, completely blown. And yeah, after that, I learned yeah. truth is indeed, truth is... <laughs> Transparency. Very, truth is essential, yeah. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. In doing the work that you've done, including this work that we're about to talk about, how much are you personally impacted by it? A friend of mine, Alex Kotlowitz, has written a number of books here, uh, one called There Are No Children Here. He just wrote another called American Summer about the violence problem in Chicago. And he allowed, in one of these conversations, that he had to actually go into therapy after writing that last book, because he had like secondary PTSD from spending so much time with people living their tragedies uh, with them and so on. You know, you've written about some ghastly things, both of you have. How do you insulate yourself emotionally from that, or do you? I'm, I mean, I, I, I certainly have been deeply shaken by uh, Darfur, for example, or some of the things in South Sudan, for example. But I think that one thing that has fortified me and reassured me that maybe doesn't come through enough is that side by side with the worst of humanity, you invariably come across the best of humanity. And so, you know, in Congo one time, the most lethal conflict since World War II, uh, I uh, spent time with a warlord who was as brutal as anybody could be and covered his predations. But then the person who had the deepest impression on me from that trip was this little Polish nun who was working in Congo and all the other aid groups had fled and she stayed behind and she was single-handedly running an emergency feeding center and an orphanage and negotiated to keep the warlord out of her town. And she was just so strong and courageous that I, returned from Congo actually feeling better about, the, about, about human nature, about the yeah. human capacity to do the right thing when challenged. Well, and one of the things that is noteworthy about your works 
is that they're both bracing and sobering and hopeful. And uh, that is the case with this book as well, Tightrope, which was inspired, as we said at the beginning, by what happened to people in your hometown of Yamhill. And you tell the stories of the Knapp family, a family that you grew up around, young people on your school bus, really devastated over time, caught in the switches of this changing economy. Tell us a little about that. The Knapps lived just down the road from me. They got on the school bus right after I did. Uh, Farland was my grade. Uh, then um, Zeeland, uh, Regina, Nathan, Keelan, a little bit younger. Mr. Knapp uh, had a union job laying sewer pipes. Um, Mrs. Knapp was a tractor driver on a, on a, on a, on a hazelnut farm. Um, they they'd bought their own place. The kids were full, full of life, very ebullient kids. And, uh, and when Farland turned 16, we were all jealous because his family had saved up and got him a Ford Mustang for his birthday. And we were so jealous of Farland. And, and then, um, you know, all told, a, a quarter of the kids on my number six bus uh, died from drugs, alcohol, suicide-related pathologies. And Farland died of liver failure um, connected to drug and alcohol use. Zeeland died in a house fire when he was passed out drunk. Regina died of hepatitis um, from needle use. Uh, Nathan blew himself up cooking meth. And the only survivor was Keelan, who survived because he was spending 13 years in the Oregon State Penitentiary. And just to, you know, one after the other. And, and they weren't... I mean, they were obviously outliers in some sense, but there was another family on the bus also with five children, and then that family as well, four of the five are now gone. It just, it was and, staggering. And, and what you found as you did your work was, this is an extreme example, but not all that extreme. You, you talk about death of despair. Your death certificate says died of uh, drug overdose or other things. It's a symptom. Yeah, it's a symptom, but, no. but really it's despair that you're suggesting. Well, there's some seminal research by Angus Deaton and uh, you know, Ann Case at another university, uh, and um, they actually looked at census data. We recognize other universities. <laughs> <laughs> they looked at census data, and they discovered that uh, while everybody's mortality rates are dropping, all segments of the society, uh, there was one category, which was middle-aged whites, men and women, where mortality rates were actually rising. That means they're dying earlier. Uh, and it's uh, for three reasons, which, which they call the deaths of despair. One is deaths related to alcohol. Uh, two is deaths related to drug overdose. And three is suicides. And mm -hmm. we are at historic highs for suicide rates since World War II. And Deaths of Despair really captures what it is because so much of it is, you know, they've given up on life. They, they don't have hope anymore. And it's not, so it's not just in Yamhill. This is across the country. And um, it is so impactful that it's actually reduced the life expectancy for all Americans such that for the for three third, years in a row, three years in a row, we have declining life expectancy, uh, average life, life expectancy. And we haven't had that for 100 years since the pandemic flu in 1918. Even in the Great Depression, 
uh, there was rising life expectancy. So we're kind of like in this, what we call sort of a, um, you know, a social Great Depression. Uh, where life expectancy is dropping. And what drives this? We talked before about the failures of our economic system, but you, you guys make a very important point here in that we tend to treat these things as failures of character, but you feel yeah. these, these are systemic failures. In, you know, in Yamhill, which is largely lily white, and I think probably in a lot of white communities, people in the 1990s, looked at struggles in the black community around the US and said um, rather patronizingly that, oh, this is because of black culture and it's deadbeat dads and people making bad decisions about drugs, uh, you know, having children out of wedlock, uh, this kind of thing. And meanwhile, the great Harvard sociologist, William Julius Wilson, was saying, no, it's about jobs. He was exactly right, because when jobs left places like Yam Hill or Maine or Appalachia, wherever it was, the same pathologies unfolded. And um, it was both that in places like Yam Hill, it was partly that the traditional good union jobs left and that when people could get work, it paid much, much less than before. And so uh, for the bottom half of the distribution, there has been this, this plunge in ability to live a good life. Well, you've pointed out that in comparable situations, you talked about, for example, the auto industry leaving parts of Canada, but the same effect wasn't felt. What was the difference? It's very interesting. So after the financial crisis, you had automakers laying off auto workers, both in Detroit and in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. So we had a chance to compare uh, what the response was. So in the U.S., because of the unusual circumstances, as you well know, uh, you know, you extended unemployment benefits, and so they got more cash. But because they lost their job, they also lost their health care. And so these families were just you know, doubly stressed. Over in Windsor, uh, Canada, well, first of all, those families didn't lose their health care because uh, there's um, basically you know, universal health care in, in Canada. Second of all, the government takes a much more active role, and they saw that there were layoffs, and immediately, within 24 hours, what they call these government active centers kicked in and started looking around where the demand for new, different types of jobs were, and they discovered that it was in nursing. And there was a nursing program already training people, but it was full. So they actually um, arranged another training program, retraining program, to take these auto workers, welders, and also sorts of auto technicians to, you know, to train them to become, to go into nursing. And uh, that really helped. And so years later, you have not only these, these um, auto, laid off auto workers had reintegrated into the uh, workday world much more uh, quickly, but also they didn't have the problems years later, like self-medication, depression, the equivalent of PTSD. They, they just didn't have those in the same way that um, the, the people in Detroit did. David, I, I think there's a misperception in the U.S. among affluent Americans that, you know, these are tragic, but this is the inevitable consequences of automation, globalization, and it's not. It was the consequence of bad policy over 50 years in the U.S. and bad policy driven by a bad narrative that this is all about personal responsibility. And that produced a much harsher line of policies that meant that the U.S., in contrast to other OECD countries, invested less in human capital and less in social safety nets. And 
ultimately that I think is what led to those deaths of despair and is partly why the naps are no longer with us. So here's a paradoxical thing. Uh, you mentioned race before, and you, you write about people in the inner city as well as people in these small towns and rural areas, whites and blacks, and, and in some ways the similarity between their experiences, between the loss that they've encountered and the ramifications of that. But people in Yamhill, they don't see themselves as kin. And you, we can't have this discussion without talking about the complicated issue of race, because what people in Yamhill don't have is the, the weight of this legacy of race. But if you have the discussion with them about white privilege, they'd get very angry about it because they don't feel privileged and they think it's code for poor minorities are going to get stuff and I'm the one who's going to pay for it. All this is sort of a caricature, and a, but it's striking. Bobby Kennedy made these heroic efforts in the 60s to knit together the black working class and the white working class and create this common front. And for a while, it might have worked. And then really with Nixon's Southern strategy, there was this very successful effort to woo the white working class, partly, I think, by playing on fears of competition from... African Americans. And the upshot is that today there is this, uh, this, this tension. You know, having said that, I mean, the, the white working class, like the black working class, tends to be socially conservative on issues like abortion, uh, uh, in the case of white working class, guns. But on economic issues, they actually tend to be fairly liberal. So talk about raising the minimum wage. White working class strongly believes it should be raised. Uh, parental leaves, uh, early childhood programs. I mean, there, there are, I think it becomes really important for Democrats to not give up on those voters and to um, try to win them on the economic arguments. And healthcare is a particular example because expanded Medicaid, we ran into so many cases where people really were, th were they needed that. One of your colleagues, uh, Eduardo Porter, wrote a piece just the other day that was really, really interesting called How the GOP Became the Party of the Left Behind. And he said by 2016, the Republican Party won almost twice the share of voters in the nation's most destitute counties, home to the poorest 10% of Americans than it won in the richest. By 2016, the nation's political map corresponded neatly to the distribution of prosperity. Mr. Trump won 58% of the vote in the counties with the poorest 10% of the population. In the richest, his share was 31%. He has, in some ways, weaponized this sense of loss and aggrievement and anger at the Democratic Party for not delivering more in terms of assistance. I think that among... In when Democrats have these conversations, I think they're, they tend to be too glib about how the problems are all the Republicans. And these are bipartisan. I mean, the, we have 50 years of failures, bipartisan failures. Democrats have fingerprints on them as well. But having said that, I think it's still true that when... Uh, so people in counties that had higher rates of deaths of despair were substantially more likely to vote for Trump. And that, I mean, that correlated. And yet, what would reduce deaths of despair? Well, one thing is access to, to, to medical care. Uh, and, you know, the 
one thing that President Trump did particularly aggressively was try to erode people's access to healthcare. I mean, it, you really do get the sense of a lot of people desperately, you know, desperate for better outcomes, and then, as a result, voting for President Trump, and then what does he do? He erodes access to healthcare. We, in, in, in Tightrope, we talked to my old friend, Mary Mayer, who, yes. you know, this wonder, this dear old friend of mine, wonderful woman. She was homeless for seven years. She, at one point, she put her, a gun in her mouth to, to end it all. Um, and I asked her whether she ever thought that there was a political uh, solution or at least a, a political answer to some of these difficulties in our community. And she said traditionally she hadn't. She hadn't traditionally been interested in politics. And finally, in 2016, she thought, got engaged and voted for the first time and voted for President Trump. And but I, a lot of it, I think, is that um, you know some issues are so systemic and gigantic that they just don't even try and analyze it because there is um, an education distinction. Uh, a lot of these people, maybe if they do have a high school education, that's about it. They didn't go to college. So they don't analyze politics the way we all sit here and, you know, on our screens following every... But I think about this often because I sit on television sets and I talk about non-college voters and I realize how that must sound to voters who didn't go to college, like somehow they're less bright or thoughtful, or, and they feel like, hey, we have good reason to vote for Donald Trump or vote for a candidate who is going to take a blowtorch to the status quo because the status quo failed us. The status quo is what led us down. There is definitely that attitude. I mean, for instance, they'll say, you know, if you say President Trump, you know, is corrupt, I mean, he's actually monetizing the president. Oh, they all do that. Exactly. Yes. They do feel that. But then when it is such a large problem, then they start to focus on issues that they care very much about. So for instance, well, one person says, I like my guns. I don't want, I don't want to vote for anybody who really uh, wants to take away my guns. And another one said, um, you know, I, I don't like immigrants. And, and so that's a really contained issue that they can deal with. And it's, it's the issue they'll vote on. And the other uh, woman, who it's very hard to explain, but she, she's a pastor. She's really a, a very um, down-to-earth person, upstanding person in her community. But she said, I vote for Trump because I, I think he represents family values. <laughs> well, because he, you know, he, he's up on TV. He's got his beautiful family there. And so I think that you know, he projects, he's very successful at projecting this image. Uh, and it's you know something that uh, really strikes. And he's been embraced uh, around issues like judges and and abortion right. by the evangelical community, which is his strongest core of support. I said that you you wrote a, also a hopeful book. Talk about the things that gave you hope. Well, one is that we know what works. Partly because, I mean, these issues are ones that Germany dealt with, Canada dealt with. Life expectancy is not falling in those countries. Um, Portugal decriminalized uh, drug possession, including heroin, cocaine, and mounted a public health effort. And that, you write a lot about this, about how pervasive the drug problem is and how drug diversion programs that decriminalize drugs and use the resources to move people into treatment programs have been very effective. So much more successful. You know, we, yet we still deal with drugs basically with a law enforcement toolbox when it is cheaper and infinitely more humane and successful to deal with, with, the, with the public health, with the treatment toolbox. And so 
we've seen programs that work, and we, we write about in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a incredibly successful program that deals with women who had addictions for 15 years on average or facing prison. Instead, they uh, go into a program that provides counseling, provides treatment, and uh, gives them jobs. And we've also seen that we can address some social problems when we put our mind to it. The Obama administration in 2010 addressed veteran homelessness. And this was, I mean, the, the country was embarrassed that there were so many veterans on the street. And we put our minds to it, it became a priority. And over six years, veteran homelessness was reduced by half. If we were similarly embarrassed by child homelessness, then we could reduce child homelessness by half as well. You know, this is the age of innovation in these, uh, in these areas. I mean, it's incredible how much research is done at all, all universities across the country trying to you know, prove what works and what doesn't work in terms of addressing these social problems. So we, we have a plethora of examples of randomized controlled trials that actually show what works and what doesn't work. We are funding some of them, but they're all done on sort of piecemeal basis. What we really need is a systematic um, you know, approach that allows, and has, you need government intervention. You just can't you know, cure all of society's ills with these sort of patchwork of philanthropic endeavors. We need you know, much more systemic Let, intervention. Let's return to e economics for a second. We've got historic levels of inequality. You write about this. I think you wrote that the annual bonus pool for Wall Street exceeded, uh, this must have made you popular around uh, town, <laughs> exceeded uh, the, the, the income of minimum wage workers in this country collectively. That's a stark statistic. Can you solve these problems without solving that problem? No, I think, I think you definitely can solve these problems. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean taking away from other people. It means lifting you know, the bottom half. We need to focus on addressing uh, the lack of opportunity and the lack of investment in human capital um, at the level of the 50% of people at the, at the lower um, income level. Those people, we need to lift them up. But is it grow the pie, yeah, basically. But I mean, doesn't it also require uh, those people who have done very, very well to recognize their responsibility to make those investments? And how do you, we are so siloed. Uh, I mean, the, the thing about this book and why I so recommend everyone read it is that there is a crisis in this country that we can't see from the apartment towers of, uh, in Chicago and San Francisco and, and New York. A mile or two from here, we see all of these problems that you're writing about in communities in Chicago, and yet they seem distant if you live downtown. How do we create a national sense of interconnectedness and a national conversation uh, about these to the point where it becomes politically tenable to do big things? I mean, that's a terrific question, and I really do think a lot of it has to do with improving empathy, is really recognizing that we've sort of lost empathy because we live in bubbles and we don't see um, people outside of the bubble. What's very interesting is that you know, people um, in the top 20%, they contribute in terms of charity uh, you know, less as a percentage of income than people at the bottom 20%. You're thinking, how could all these people who are so poor, how can they contribute more as a percentage of their income? And it's partly because they live in neighborhoods where they see need. And people who, and the top 20%, they don't see the need so much. And so when people in poor neighborhoods confront the need, they give, they respond. 
and I think that if we saw that also with the top 20%, if they saw the need, they would also respond. Nick, as I said, you've written about some extraordinarily difficult challenges all over the world that people are facing. You've shown a light on these kinds of challenges, and yet often you write that you're optimistic. In fact, you wrote about what's happened around the world in your year-end column. Are you optimistic right now? Yeah, I am. And Don't feel pressured. I mean. uh, no, I am. I mean, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that I think the U.S. really took some fundamental missteps over the last 50 years. Uh, and that involved cutting taxes and cutting investments in human capital and safety nets. As I look at the, that trajectory, I wonder if Kansas under Sam Brownback, Mark, kind of the... The governor the, who cut taxes dramatically and was ultimately... And ultimately, Kansas voters rebelled and because their schools were doing too poorly. And when Kansas voters rebel and want to raise taxes, that strikes me as a really interesting moment. Likewise, you have red states like Idaho, like Utah, that are expanding Medicaid. So I wonder if there isn't something of a of a mental switch, you begin to see, as a lot of whites suffer from drug addiction, a change in the frame of reference. Which is a sad commentary Which in is, of, its, reflects of itself. Which enormous hypocrisy and double standards, but, the, but maybe a step toward a better policy. So as Kansas goes, so goes the nation. <laughs> let's and hope. I mean, yes, uh, let, let's hope that that's the case. And you do see that people are reaching for some big ideas and new approaches. Um, you know, as in Oregon, in, in Oregon, we were always raised on this sort of pioneer mythology of are these heroic ancestors who crossed the country and they would never have relied on a benefit plan. Well, and of course, the whole reason that the pioneers went to the Willamette Valley was because of a benefit plan, a government benefit plan. It was the homesteads right. um, at the end. My area was transformed by these big ideas of homesteads, rural electrification, the GI Bill of Rights. And that is what I think can indeed, again, transform the opportunities for the kids on the number six bus. Well, Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wudan, thank you so much for shining a light on this crisis and for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.